will, open your Bibles to the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 15, and beginning in verse 22, and we're going to read this morning uh, through the end of the book. I'm going to read it a section at a time as kind of following uh, the outline, but we're going to begin in Romans chapter 15, and again verse 22. Uh, we have reached a day that uh, many of you uh, thought we would never see. In that, uh, this is going to be the final sermon uh, from uh, the exposition of, of Romans. Uh, some of you, uh, your, your entire membership or time of membership at North Clave Baptist Church, Johnny Sanders, uh, has been spent largely in the study of the book of Romans. And I think that's probably a, a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, I suspect, and, and this will be a bit of an inside joke for kind of theological uh, nerds uh, such as myself and others, that uh, when I do these series, I need to be reminded that I am not D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, that is the great expositor from the previous century, uh, that I don't know how many sermons he preached from the book of Romans, but it would be multiple of the rough, roughly a hundred that I have preached over the last four years. And so, uh, uh, so at any rate, uh, we're going to complete this today, and in some ways, uh, like a lot of texts, there are texts that uh, several weeks in advance, I know, hey, I'm going to be there, and I'm excited, and I have some concept of what I'm going to say. Uh, this is a, a section that I wasn't really looking forward to, not because we were ending the, the study of Romans, not, not that, it's just like, uh, that's a lot of stuff that, you know, how do you preach this? And then as you begin to study, God begins to illuminate and begins to unfold uh, what he wants you to, to learn uh, from these texts. He, you know, uh, even the begats are inspired and errant and infallible. You can learn from them, okay? And so such it is with passages such uh, as, as this. And so uh, we kind of in the providence of God, uh, I got just a little behind schedule uh, earlier uh, this year. And so uh, I would have liked to have finished this a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't. And so we shall now. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to begin uh, our study uh, from the Gospel of Luke. And that will serve uh, as kind of our Christmas series. Uh, we'll have a little break after the first of the year for a few uh, kind of introductory sermons. But then I will be preaching through the Gospel of Luke uh, over the next few weeks. That was meant to be funny. Okay, but um, it's interesting. Uh, a friend of mine asked me this this week if I would listen to uh, a sermon. Well, imagine that. I guess she thought I needed to, and, and I did. And, and um, uh, it, it, it was a, a text. I mean, you know, Gospel of John, straight. You know, but the pastor admitted a couple of things. He, he said one uh, that. I preach through books of the Bible so that I won't avoid anything that's difficult. And he said, we're at a place that's very difficult. We're going to deal with a doctrine that many people find offensive. And so it's a difficult subject. So I found it interesting uh, that he said some of the same things I've said over the years. Uh, a commitment to preaching through books of the Bible because I think it's healthy for the church. And sometimes you run into things when you do that that are difficult to understand, but they're still good for God's people. For us to, to think about them and, and try uh, to understand. 
And so with those things in mind, let's, let's look. Uh, again, for lack of a, a better way of ending the series, I simply entitled this So Long, Goodbye, and Godspeed. And so uh, uh, we will say goodbye to the book of Romans as far as Sunday morning study. I hope uh, that uh, our time in it has challenged you to continue uh, to read and to study uh, from this great work. So, Romans chapter 15, verse 22, we'll read through the end of chapter 15 at first here. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I've enjoyed your company for a while, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it and indeed owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Pray with me. Father, again, we ask that the Spirit that inspired the Apostle Paul, your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, would illuminate us for understanding today. Uh, give me an ability to speak and an ability to communicate so that we may understand and then you may apply these things to our life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It would seem appropriate to remind you, uh, again, when we began uh, the series, uh, we noted that the Apostle Paul uh, was at the conclusion of his third missionary endeavor. He is in Corinth. He writes to Rome, and as we see here, he's going to outline uh, what his future itinerary is going uh, to be. Uh, we see in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 uh, that Paul was quite interested in taking up a collection, a, a collection of money uh, from these predominantly Gentile churches there in southern Europe and taking it back uh, to Jerusalem uh, both as a practical uh, effort to relieve their suffering, but also, I think, as a, a symbol of the unity of the church, that God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, is saving individuals from the Gentile world as well as the Jewish world. And they are now one in Christ. And so we see that in the background as we come to verse 22 today, and I identified as the, the proposed itinerary. And again, Paul outlines, this is what my plan is. And he roughly carried it out. What he didn't know 
is that he would receive an all-expenses paid trip from Jerusalem to Rome at, by the generosity of the Roman government. That is, he was a prisoner. That he was arrested because the Jews uh, objected to his preaching and so he appeals all the way through the various circuit courts of the day to go to Caesar's court in Rome. And so while he planned to get there, he did not plan to arrive in chains. But in the providence of God, he did. And so he completed uh, the, the work there uh, in both uh, 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 Macedonia, uh, the, the Corinth, around the, the city of Corinth, and he returns uh, to Jerusalem. There he's arrested, transported uh, to Rome. Just kind of a, a broad word in terms of application. Many times, Christians are guilty of being, I'll call it hyper-spiritual, in that we refuse to make legitimate and wise plans for any endeavor in our life and kind of say, well, I'm just letting the Spirit lead. Okay? Maybe there's a place for that. Again, there's something to be said for the providence of God, uh, that which he, the door he allows to open and the door he shuts. I, I get that, okay? Uh, but there's also the place for prayerful planning. And it's okay to plan, and it is a right thing uh, to plan. And we should plan for our lives. What is it? A, 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 a failure to plan is a plan for failure. And so we should plan. And if they're displeasing to God, He may change those plans. He may providentially interrupt those plans. And guess what? You may plan and it be right in the center of the will of God. And you may face great adversity in accomplishing that plan. Sometimes it's very hard to even understand the various providences of uh, our lives. And so we see there an outline. Uh, we see the presentation of this present endeavor, again, the offering, and that when he does come, there in verse 29, he will have completed that which uh, God had set forth. Again, completed work in, in uh, Europe, uh, going back to Jerusalem, delivering uh, the uh, offering, and then arriving in Rome, and that would be, uh, he would be having been experienced the very blessing of God in uh, coming uh, to them, and the plan was not so much that he come to Rome and remain there, but that it be a stopping off place to resupply himself, and again, he's already saying, I'm going to want you to assist me as I uh, move forward uh, into, into Rome, okay? And so that, that's my plan. And I will, I will just share with you that there are many uh, biblical scholars, and my New Testament professor at Beeson, uh, Frank Thielman, is one that believes that the Apostle Paul was released from this particular imprisonment in Rome. Eventually he would be martyred in, in Rome. But that he was released and he did go to Spain. And he did go there and proclaim the gospel because, again, what he didn't want to do was to continue to work the ground already tilled by others. He wanted to take the gospel to places in which, uh, where Jesus Christ had not been preached. What, what, a, what a bold 
commitment. What most of us as Christians, including your pastor, attempts to do is to find the path of least resistance. If, if we even think in terms of our life ministry, we seek to always follow the easiest course. And yet Paul says, okay, I've, I've done what I have set out to do uh, in, in kind of Asia and, and Europe, and I'm going to press forward. I'm going to go beyond where uh, any uh, gospel preacher has ever gone before. And again, I want you to assist me, and I believe that this will be according to the blessings of God. Look there at verse 30. How may we join together in the work of ministry? Paul's word is my word. Paul's word is every person of God's appeal. That is an appeal in the name of Christ. Notice that word there, strive together. One of the most difficult things that God calls us to do as the people of God is to pray diligently. I'm talking about prayer that goes beyond, Lord, thank you for this day, bless this food, that goes beyond uh, keep me healthy, make me wealthy, and don't let anybody I care about get hurt. But goes well beyond that to intercede and to petition. It is hard work. I can tell you from my own personal experiences, I have sought to cultivate, to develop my prayer life beyond anything that I've known before, that you will find more things that will hinder your prayer time than anything. There will always be things that you think are more necessary than your time with God in prayer. I suspect there is a direct, I believe in eternity, one of the things that we will be shocked and dismayed by is how little time we spend in prayer and how, as the old hymn goes, oh, what peace we've often forfeited because we did not take everything always, unfailingly, unceasingly, unreservedly to God in prayer. And so Paul says, join with me, work hard, I'm going forward, you can be with me by striving in prayer. particular aspect of it, so that the unbelievers of the Jews there in Jerusalem will not hinder me as I go forward and that the Jews who have been converted will receive what I bring to them, this offering, uh, appropriately. Okay? You know, sometimes we try to minister to one another and we offend people by what we try to do, don't we? And so there's kind of a God equip and empower me to go and serve and give people the grace to receive it in the way that I intend it to do. As a pastor, what I find many times is where is the line between entering into someone's life for the, the, the sake of the gospel, 
for gospel ministry, and where does it become meddling? You know, when am I, when is it beneficial for me to show up by your hospital bed? And when is the time I feel like somebody's driving an ice pick between my eyeballs? Would you please shut up? You know what I'm saying? And so, again, we, we should pray. And Now, did God answer the prayers? Presumably they prayed. Did he answer the prayers that, that he would be delivered from the unbelievers? Yeah, he answered it. God said no. He was delivered over to the unbelievers in Jerusalem. Actually, as I said, he came to Rome in shackles. Okay? But God answered their prayer, and God had a pur- God's purpose. Again, Paul, because he's not God, he didn't know the secret things of God. Was God was Paul way out of the will of God by going to Jerusalem, planning to go to Rome, planning to go to Spain? God said, "No, no, no. I'm going. I'm going to just get you, Paul, for being out of my will." No, I believe in every moment of all of those things, he was right in the center of the will of God. Okay, but it certainly was what an unsmiling as many of us suffer. So, there is a joint effort, and again, Paul wanted these prayers answered, so he would come to them and be refreshed, again, as he went to, to, to Spain. Verse 33, Paul's prayer, kind of a benediction, or a, a, a semicolon benediction. It's not really the final word in the letter, of course. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well... Guess what? There was a man named Nero that was about to show up in Rome. You'd think Paul's prayer would have been answered, don't you? That that they would have been wealthy and healthy there in Rome because they had the great apostle of the Gentiles praying for them. But guess what? There was to be unprecedented martyrdom within a generation well within a generation there in Rome. As we've said before, the difficulties of our providence, that is, our circumstances in life, as difficult as they may be, are never a threat to our experiencing of the joy and the peace of God. It'd be okay to say amen there. If you want want to, if the Spirit so leads you. There can be a lot of difficulties that can come to this life. There really can be. And yet you can know the peace of God amidst the storms of a fallen world. I went to a neighbor's house this week to uh, uh, to borrow a ladder, and we, we chatted for just, just a moment. And he has a friend that he says is an atheist, and he had lost a son uh, very tragically in, in an accident. And, uh, just couldn't, you know, how can a good God allow such terrible things? And, you know, those are... Those are good questions. That's, you know, that's a historic question, the problem of pain. How can a good God allow bad things to happen to his people? 
But again, in our fallen world, sorrowing providences will come and they will go. Sometimes they stay. But the peace of God is always available to God's people in every circumstance. And so God prays that for these people, and I pray that for you. Let's move to the second section this morning. I'm going to read verses 16, or chapter 16, verses 1 uh, through 16. <clears throat> I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, uh, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, uh, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus and our, uh, our fellow worker in Christ, my beloved Stachus. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the uh, family of Aristobulus. Uh, greet my kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophina and Trophosa. Greet the, the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus and Phlegon and Hermes and Petrobus and Hermas and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus and Julia and Nurus and his sister Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And so, as he closes his letter, the Apostle Paul wants to speak a word to those who are in Rome, that are already there. And he begins with the name of a woman whose name is Phoebe, that is probably the likely carrier of, of this letter. One commentator noticed, noted, and I thought this was pretty incredible, that he entrusted to a woman, and I don't, don't, to a woman in the ancient world, a document that would be the document that sparked the Protestant Reformation, among other things. I mean, there's no parallel as to what God has accomplished through uh, this truth. And, and so many times when you hear the bunk, I'm trying to clean up my language, okay? the bunk from the world that says that the church, that the Bible, that Christians are demeaning to women, tell them with all the love of Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Because Paul trusted this dear saint of God. And I'm not even going to get into it today. But most of you know that that word servant of the church is the same word translated deacon. Now whether or not she was an official officer of the church 
or whether she was simply, she served the church. Hard to know. I'm not going to get into that debate. Not of interest to me uh, today. But the point is that she served the church of God. And that ladies have always played an essential role to the proclamation of the gospel and to the functioning of the church. And so you should take heart of that. Another thing that I can see very broadly in this, and again, I'm not good enough with the original Greek to know all of this on my own, but they're both Jew and Gentile, slave and free names in here. In other words, from ancient documents and comparing languages and so forth, we know that some of these were Gentiles, some of them were Jews, that some of these names were names commonly associated with slaves. What does that tell us about the early church? It was not monolithic. It was very diverse. That, that the church, evidently, probably Phoebe, since she was a, a patron of, of many, she was probably like Lydia, a woman of means, a woman of some type of, of wealth, and that she used that wealth for the good of the church and the growth of the gospel, okay? But there are also others in this list that were likely slaves who were of the lowest socioeconomic rung in that uh, society. And so the church should be, because the gospel is for all people in all places at all times, should be diverse. It should cross every barrier. That the gospel should be proclaimed to all people, all places, all times. And that God will save from those people. One final, or two, I'll make two final comments. Look there at verse 13. Greet Rufus. If you were, if, and again, my Wednesday night group knows these things. That's why you should be in church on Wednesday night hearing the Word of God taught, okay? You're not going to die and go to hell if you don't, but, well, no, nah, I'm kidding. But you should come and pray together and study the Word of God together because I've taught you what a cross-reference is, right? Those that come on Wednesday night, nod your head, you know what a cross-reference is. Maybe even a footnote in a study Bible because what you can do is look and my, now, my Bible's not a, not a study Bible. I, I bought it because it had thick, heavy pages so I can write in it. But probably, if I were to go back in my office and get my study Bible, I could probably trace out, and I would find, through the comparing of Scripture, that this Rufus was likely the son of one Simon of Cyrene, the one who carried the cross of our Lord to Calvary. That's kind of interesting. That's kind of interesting to me. And so we don't know that for certain, but I think there's a good likelihood that that's who that is there. Okay? Now, the final thing, well, no, there's actually two more things that I'm going to draw for this. Verse 16, greet each other with a holy kiss. Okay? That, that was a common form of Middle Eastern greeting. Okay? Uh, Brian has already put the fear of uh, the the bubonic plague in us uh, today so uh, trust me you don't have to kiss me a nice nice handshake will do just 
fine. Even waving to me across the room this time of year is absolutely fine, okay? But uh, again, standard form of greeting, okay? And we should have an, a deep affection. There is actually great ministry that takes place when a church is gathered in, the, in what we would call fellowship speaking to one another, calling each other by name, reminding one another that I love you, that I'm here for you, that in a church this size, we know each other. We know the trials and tribulations that we're facing, that we ought to be praying for one another. Right? Thank you. Thank you. All right. So we, we see that. And then the, the final thing from, from this, and there's so much more. So listen, again, in, in, in doing my studies, these, uh, whatever number of verses there are from where we started to the end of the book. Uh, one of my favorite commentators is, guy, is a, the late uh, James Montgomery Boyce. Wonderful writer, wonderful pastor. He's a Presbyterian, so he and R.C. Sproul both know how to do a proper baptismal service now. They're both in heaven, thank God. And, and so they're no longer de, you know, living in you know, a kind of a deluded state. But in this little section... And, and Boyce's commentary is basically manuscripts of his sermons. There was 100 pages and 14 sermons. 14 sermons from this particular section of, of Scripture. So that, so that was uh, quite, uh, uh, quite interesting. So, again, greet, greet one another. And then one of the things that sometimes is observed or discussed, I've certainly seen it in my life in the church is ministry and the church. And we're all called to be ministers, okay? It's not just the professionals up here, okay? We're all called to be ministers and servants of the church, servants of the gospel. Is it about the truth, that is namely ideas, or is it about people? And you've got to hold those things. They're, they're, they're like the, the rails of a train track. You know, trains get in trouble if you don't have both tracks. We went out to uh, Charles Hughes's on Tuesday and destroyed his house. I mean, I, I took my two older grandchildren, and uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know if the house will ever be the same. But, but Charles has this amazing set of trains out there. And the thing is, you've got to have both wheels on both sets of tracks to make those trains run right, okay? And here's the thing. You've got to keep... The, the, the reality of truth and absolute truth and the accurate and faithful proclamation of the gospel, and you've got to hold it together with the fact that you love people. You've got to love people. Yeah, and and, and it's, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, you know, sometimes I want to do the atomic elbow on people's heads, you know, and just, you know kind of do, you know, do one of those, uh, you know, things off the top rope kind of moves. And, and usually when I do that, that's when I needed to hug them around the neck. But they go together. Nobody can ever say that the Apostle Paul wasn't concerned about the truth. And we'll see that in just a moment. But obviously, he took a, a substantial portion of this letter and his time to write about people that he had come across in the course of his life and ministry. And they were important. And so these things go together. The gospel, which is truth, is for people. 
And so we need to keep those things together. All right, let's move to the third issue here, beginning in verse 17. Imagine a major figure in the New Testament speaking to the issue of truth, of right doctrine, and warning about false prophets. We've never seen that before in the Bible, have we? Well, in fact, every major figure from Jesus to John has a word to say about keep your stuff straight. That it's not about your personal preference. It's not about your opinion. It's not about how you feel. It's not about what you think. It's about what the Word of God says. And we've reached a time in, in the history of church that people are more concerned with feelings and experience than they are with thus saith the Lord. And so Paul warns against that, and he does it in multiple places, but we see it here. Verse 17, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so what does he say? Be alert to those who would distort and pervert, subvert, undermine the truth of the gospel. It seems that he's addressing those who are within the church, okay? False prophets come in two types. Those that are external to the church and those that are internal to the church, okay? It's always been a problem. It always will be a problem. John seems to think in 1 John that the final and ultimate Antichrist will arise from within the visible church. And the church, as I see it in America, notice what I said, as I see it, I don't see everything, I don't know everything. I know y'all think I do, but I don't. And I don't think that I do. But the church, because of their preference for experience and entertainment, all of these things for gimmicks is ripe to believe anything. And I say that because they already do. I've told you before, any nation in which a best-selling Christian author is identified as Joel Osteen is ripe for spiritual disaster. He's not even, he's not even Christian. I'm, I didn't say he wasn't a Christian, which I probably would call him, but, but he's not even Christian in his teaching. Just because you occasionally refer to a Bible verse doesn't mean that you're rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay? And so there's plenty of false teachers that open a Bible every time they open their mouths. And so, watch out. Know doctrine. Know your truth. You know, in, in, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, in our church, which was... I don't know what, you know, it certainly was conservative. Probably many of you would think it was fundamentalist and so forth. And I've told you before, fundamentalist is a pejorative word. But if you want, but if what you mean by fundamentalist is that I believe that there are essential things that you must believe 
to enter into heaven, then label me a fundamentalist, label me an essentialist. You must believe that God sent his son into the world, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he died an atoning death at Calvary, he was buried in a tomb, and he was raised on the third day, and he's coming back again, and that you must be saved by that one and only singular Savior, by the grace of God, then you must, if you do not, if you reject any of that, you will not have your sins forgiven and you will not see heaven. So, call me narrow-minded. Little bit narrow, little bit narrow brain, little bit narrow brain. But, you forsake, you abandon those things. You fors- who, who saves? Well, I saved myself. You know, I did this so long ago. And you think, no! God saves. And God saves through the appointed means, namely the proclamation of these truths. You compromise them, you compromise the gospel. And so, as I said, in, in, in my youth, we were always warned about the liberals. And by liberal, what we mean, or at least what I mean, is fundamentally those that deny the inspiration, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the gospel. That's, therefore, they deny, typically, the deity of, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Those supernatural aspects of our faith. Folks, the liberals left 30-something years ago in terms of the Southern Baptist Convention, but we're just as plagued now as we were then. Y'all weren't supposed to like that. It's true. It's true. We're just as plagued now as we were when the fighting fundies took over the beloved convention in 1980. And I think it was a good thing. I'm thankful for seminaries that you can trust. You can't trust our colleges, but you can trust our seminaries. Yeah. Still true. But here's the thing. What, what has taken the place? Well, not liberalism, but decisionism reigns supreme. I, again, I'll repeat it again, and I, I'll say this. Uh, I heard, I'd already said this before Paul Washer said it, but he got more famous for saying it than I did. But the greatest heresy in the church today is that all you have to do is ask Jesus in your heart for the forgiveness of your sins. Folks, that's a lie, and it's straight from the pit of hell. You must be born again. You must repent of sin. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And folks, you can you pray to ask Jesus into your heart all you want to and never be saved. And again, as I've often tagged these things, that's why nobody likes me very much. But that's true. And so the, the absolute heresy of, of decision, let me tell you something. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'd be interested, though. Don't, you don't, even, don't tell me when you leave today. And I haven't. How many of you have brought, bought timeshares? I, now, I haven't, okay? Trust me. And in my experience, you know, you're on your vacation, and somebody comes up and says, I'll give you $100 to come to listen to this presentation. And I thought, well, 100 bucks. I, I've, I've gone to one, and I got my $100, and I got tickets to a show and the whole, the whole nine yards. I said, I'm broke. I've got a sick wife. i got three kids in college. I, they ain't a nickel. I said, forget it. Get over it. And they wouldn't. I find, I said, let me out of here. Give me my stuff. I'm out of here. I'm broke. But 
I've heard so many people. And, and if you've got one, I hope it's a great thing for you. But so many people have what? Buyer's remorse. And in fact, there are laws passed. Most of, the, most of the big ticket items that you can buy these days, you have so many days you turn them back because somebody turned the screws on you to buy something. We're not trying to manipulate people into making decisions for Jesus. Okay? Because too many of them in the course of my experience have buyer's remorse or something like that. I mean, again, nobody doesn't want to go to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. But has God fundamentally changed the orientation of their lives? So, so decisionism and relativism, this is what it means to me. Rule supreme in our church. Pragmatism, that's what gets the people to come. That's what will get them to come. If you'll do this, if you'll do that. Well, that's how you keep them to stay. That's how you keep them staying, too. If you've got a big enough budget, you can probably do it. Emotionalism. Two things stick out in my mind. Two different ladies, God bless them. One of them I hope is in heaven. That our job in leading worship at my previous church, not this church, was to make her feel like she was sitting on her daddy's knee. Second woman told me that our job was to make her have the Holy Ghost goosebumps. I'm just thinking of ways I could do that. Y'all do not want me to share what has crossed my mind. See, I'm growing in Jesus, folks. A year ago, I might have said something. Mysticism, just, you know, it's just all about, you know, this kind of ethereal, whimsical. No, it's about Jesus, Son of God. The one we celebrate at Christmas. The one who came and lived in a very fallen world. And unlike us, he never sinned. And he died on a rugged cross at Calvary. And he died in my place and in your place. The place of all who would ever believe for the forgiveness of our sins. And he rose from the dead, which is a 727 exclamation points of its truth and one day he shall come back so be, be alert avoid those within the church that want to be divisive regarding the truth you know one of the things I said at Billy Nuss's funeral the other day uh, certainly in my early days at Center Crest took quite a few lumps along the way uh, imagine me upsetting people uh, but you know it's the safe I'm a jerk and I upset you, I, I really, I'm sorry. I, that's not my point. I, I can be a jerk. I, I admit that. All God's people said. And, but, if I tell you the truth from the Word of God, and you're mad about it, and you don't like it, I'll live with it. And I never forget one particular member was topping the trees about the truth. And old Billy, you know, Ph.D. Billy Nuss, just brilliant guy, you know, just sweetest man in the world, great guy. Did you know? wasn't a profound intellect, he, and I don't mean that in any shape, form, or fashion to be demeaning to Billy. But he looked that guy straight dead in the eye and said, "That's what the Bible says, isn't it?" That's a pretty bold thing. That's a pretty bold thing. Yeah, that's what the Bible says, isn't it? And so. 
seems so appropriate for us. Verse 18, people with smooth talk and flattery. Wow. Wow. Church is filled. Church is filled. And folks, it's not just those folks out there. It's the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay? And I'm sure it's Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches. I mean, I'm, I, you know. But anyway, okay. Again, but Paul has been impressed by their embrace of the truth. Okay, verse 19. It's interesting, verse 20. I'm having to pick up the pace. Y'all, y'all have, have kind of drug your feet a little bit this morning. Um, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, isn't that a little bit of an oxymoron? But yes, let me tell you something. God is God. And there's two ways that God will be glorified and he will be vindicated. He will crush all of his enemies, including Satan, all that stands in opposition to him. And he will welcome all who come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. He will welcome them and he will be glorified in that. And so this God who sent his son will soon bring about the ultimate and the final defeat of Satan. And then we see beginning in in verse 21, the appropriate benediction. Again, uh, just a quick word that uh, uh, there, uh, verse 22, uh, Tertius, or Tertius, um, said he wrote the letter. Uh Uh-oh, thought Paul wrote this letter. It was very common in the ancient world for a secretary known as an amanuus or amanuus to write as a letter was dictated to them. And so that's that dude there. Okay, so you know you got you another big fancy word to use there this week. And so those are in, that were in Corinth with Paul says, tell them Gomer says, hey. Okay? All right. All right, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we see a, a, a kind of a closing doxology, a benediction there that... Paul was all about the glory of God. And we have the privilege of doing so as well. Remember, you remember earlier this year, I talked about the fact that apart from Christ, everything you do is vanity. There is nothing that has ultimate value. But in Christ, everything has value. That we can do everything, we can do all things to the glory of God. Whether it's cleaning the toilets at home or preaching the gospel in Africa whatever, and everything else that's in between, okay? And so, Paul says to the, to the glory of the one that, that is able to strengthen you, to strengthen you, to live with peace in a fallen world in which afflictions come to you, that, that, that through this preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a, a gospel that goes all the way back to, to Genesis 1 and was progressively revealed throughout the, the history of the old covenant saints and they saw a, a glimmer in the future that, that, that ultimately was our Savior, 
Jesus Christ. It was a, a mystery to them. But now we understand the fulfillment of God's plan through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through David, uh, through Joseph and Mary, is Jesus Christ who would die on the cross for our sins. They didn't see it clearly, but praise God, we can see it clearly now. It, has been, it was revealed in the prophets, but now we see it clearly, and it's proclaimed among the nations, because that's what God has commanded us to do, to go into all the world and to make disciples and to teach them whatsoever I've commanded you. And you baptize them appropriately in water by immersion upon their profession of faith. That was free. But you baptize those who come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Those who come under the obedience of faith. Second time Paul's used that little phrase. Simply, salvation is being delivered from the tyranny of Satan to the benevolent lordship of Jesus Christ. A Lord who loves us, who because He's transformed our hearts, we desire to please Him. That our greatest delight is to hear from our God, well done, well done, well done. We don't serve out of a sense of some kind of, a, of an oppressive obligation. We serve because we delight in His approval. And so, we preach the gospel to bring about submission to the authority of the Lordship of Jesus Christ through the pro proclamation of His inerrant, infallible, and inerrant and Sufficient, sufficient, sufficient to bring about the conversion of those who hear. To that God who has been revealed from Genesis through Revelation, who I've revealed to you in this thing that's called the book of Romans, to Him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, how we thank you for your word. A word given 2,000 years ago to the man that we know as the Apostle Paul. And just as powerful and authoritative as it was then, it remains so now. Lord, may this Jesus, who's revealed to us so clearly in, in this book, and again, the other 65 books of our Bible, may we live to His glory. May we proclaim His message. And may you use us to bring the nations to the obedience of the faith of the Son of God. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.